Welcome, everyone. My name is uh, Errol Yabake. I am a senior fellow and the deputy director of the Project on Prosperity and Development here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. <laughs> Barely fits on a business card. Um, I'm also your security officer for the day, so if anything were to happen, um, follow my lead out of the building. Restrooms, as you probably know, are at the end of the hallway. Take a right. Uh, we also have coffee out there uh, for those that are interested. We're really honored to have uh, Dr. Dennis Detray here. Dennis is a longtime friend of CSIS and of the Project on Prosperity and Development. He's an affiliate with our program um, and just one of the one of the greatest and I think most provocative thinkers on uh, counterinsurgency and fragile states and stability. Um, he he just wrote a really intriguing book uh, called Why Counterinsurgency Fails the U.S. and Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I personally asked to, to host this for, for Dennis because I have my own experience in Iraq and Afghanistan and a lot of what he wrote in his book um, I think pushes envelopes and buttons in ways that are that it's really productive. I think we need to be a little bit more introspective about what we've done in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. We need to learn from places like Vietnam, uh, and we need to really be preparing for what the next scenarios are. And I think this book and Dennis's long career, which we'll get into in a second, uh, and what he's learned over the years, I think, uh, provides really valuable lessons. And, and like I said, a little bit of provocation for those of us um, that, that do this work for a living. So we're going we're gonna to talk for a few minutes. We're going to talk about the book. And then I'm really hoping to leave a good amount of time for questions from the audience, because um, I can see that there are several people that have been doing this for a long time, a lot longer than I have, uh, that are in the audience. And so I, I'd like to leave some time for that. So Dennis, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this. We're, we're really honored to have you uh, as an affiliate. So. Um, you, you wrote this book after coming back from Afghanistan and having spent some time in Iraq, but that's not where the story starts. No, the, story, the story starts for you probably during the Vietnam War, at least, in, in terms of you know, creating the foundations for, for right. this book. So tell us a little bit about the 1960s and where you were um, and, and what you were, were doing in the late 60s. Well, first, let me thank CSIS and Errol and Dan Rundy and uh, Owen and others here for hosting this for me. It's a huge honor and privilege to be here. And thank you all for coming out today. I appreciate that. Um, as Errol says, this all started a long time ago. Uh, when I graduated from Cornell, I had two choices in life. I got, was going to get drafted and go to Vietnam, or I was going to go to graduate school. Because in those days, they were still graduate deferments, and it was prior to the all-volunteer force. I wasn't terribly anti-war at that point by any means, but I didn't want to go into the Army. I just didn't think it was the right time for me. So I decided to go into graduate school. And uh, getting into graduate school on a phone call was not easy anywhere. So I went to Utah State for a couple of years. Wonderful couple of years. Met my wife, who's here today. Bless her. And uh, uh, also met somebody who thought I could actually become a serious economist and got me into the University of Chicago. Um, so in a sense, I started my career as a development economist uh, by trying to stay out of Vietnam. Uh, then, of course, ironically, I ended up going back to Vietnam as a professional with my wife uh, as the resident representative for the IMF for two years in Hanoi. Fantastic two years. I loved Hanoi, uh, loved the v Vietnamese, and uh, found it astonishing how welcoming they were to an American. Not only an American, an American who had been in the Rand Corporation, who had, which is, we all know is a front for the CIA, and uh, many other things. But they were just very open to my wife and me and to us uh, welcoming us in every way possible. So 
and made me start to think that why? I mean, we had been in some ways terrible to this country. And the answer, I think, was that in the eyes of the Vietnamese, the, what they called the American War, was not a war between people, but a war between governments. And the people, the, the anti-war movement in the United States, in a sense, underscored in the minds of many Vietnamese that the average American was not in favor of this war. And then the fact that many uh, ex-military people came back to Vietnam at the end of the war and helped rebuild the country, I think added to the fact that this was, uh, you know, this is a country full of good people if the government had got it wrong to start with. So. You worked, after graduate school, you worked at the RAND Corporation. And it was a really interesting time, I think, to be working in the RAND Corporation who had, um, you know, they had a lot of interaction in Vietnam. I was trying to think of the word to talk about what, what RAND's role was in Vietnam, but it was a complicated role. Uh, that Rand played in Vietnam, and so you were you were there afterwards, and then shortly thereafter, you went to the World Bank, and, and so talk about that transition, and talk about why. I mean, when we were talking before, you were really talking about that time in your life as as a really pivotal right point. So so tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so <clears throat> excuse me. After I got out of graduate school at Chicago, uh, my first job was at the Rand Corporation, and I spent uh, a dozen years there. The first, after the first four, I got a little <clears throat> impatient, ready to do something new and different. <clears throat> so I took an assignment under a USAID contract to spend two years in, in Islamabad, Pakistan, uh, as the resident research advisor at the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. And that really, those two years established in a fundamental sense the course for the rest of my life, both professionally and personally. Professionally, it, it gave me a deep interest in international development, and personally, a deep interest in different cultures and, and, and living in different areas of the world. Fortunately, Mary, my wife, shares these interests, at least the second one especially, so that we spent- And a sense of adventure, it seems like. Uh, totally, uh, totally. I think maybe, Mary, you're the one driving the sense of adventure a little she bit. She is, absolutely. None of this could have been happened without her. I say that in the book, and everybody is nice to their wife in books. But in this case, it's <laughs> truly, truly a fact that I, let me skip ahead a minute, because I think it's worth a brief. When I was uh, asked to go to Iraq, um, it was early 2008, like February. I got a call from Larry Knapper, who used to be the U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan when we were there. And Larry said, Dennis, which I've been asked to put together a team to go to Iraq by Petraeus, to go to Iraq and do a an assessment of the governance programs in Iraq. This was just following the surge. So David Petraeus, who's a very smart guy, wanted to know, in some sense, what was the non-kinetic side of the uh, counterinsurgency program in uh, Iraq? How could that be bolstered in the same way that the surge had bolstered the uh, kinetic side? So I, he said, uh, Larry said, I, could you join this group? And I said, well, it's certainly interesting. Let me think about it. And he said, well, I understand if you want to say no, it is a war zone. Mm -hmm. So I hung up and I said to Mary, that was Larry Knapper and he wants me to go to Iraq and, and on, for Petraeus mission to look at the governor's program. What do you think? And she said, and I quote, of course you'll go. This is only the most important development challenge in the world today. You spent your life doing development. You know, there's no question you're going to do this. Mm. So that launched my... Um, counterinsurgency career. So I really do owe Mary an enormous amount for the support she's given me over the years. Well, and I think that's a really good example of one of the things that I think is really interesting in this book is that Dennis, you're, you're a little bit of a unique figure in history where, you, you know, you're a longtime development professional, worked with the bank, worked with the IMF, 
And then you took this pivot and, and you embedded with the 173rd Airborne in, in Afghanistan and you, you spent some time in Iraq and, and you, you yourself were sort of witness to some of the really pivotal points in, in history and you, know, you were with the World Bank in Indonesia in the 1990s <coughs> that marked the end of the Suharto regime. Right. I mean, you witnessed that with, with not just Mary, but your, your children. Yes. No, no, it, I have been incredibly fortunate in the opportunities the world has given me and having a family support structure that let me take advantage of those opportunities. We were in Indonesia from 94 to 99, and it was, it was perfect in the sense that we were, I was the country director for Indonesia for the World Bank. We had a, it was one of the bank's largest programs at that time, so we were a, important players even in a big country like Indonesia. And after, uh, we'd been there about three years and I sort of was well settled. I know, knew all the big players in the government and so forth. I knew Suharto. Uh, and um, then the uh, transition took place in uh, 97, I think. And um, it was a moment in history that was palpable. I mean, I, I, you could just feel it in the air. People knew something absolutely monumental was happening. They weren't quite sure what the outcome was going to be. And it, history is, can be forgotten easily, but remembered by some. When Indonesia had transferred from Sukarno to Suharto 30 years before, a half a million people had died. And there were many people sitting in the country, in Indonesia, in the 90s who remembered those times and were deeply concerned about what was going to happen. Mm. And all I can tell you is that it wasn't going to happen on my watch if I could do anything about it. So we worked very hard to draw together all the parties. I mean, we were bit players. The country was huge and, and uh, could, knew how to take care of itself. But we worked very hard to try to... Um, smooth the, the transition um, to what eventually became democracy. And I've always thought that Indonesia has not received the attention it needs to receive on two fronts. One, the remarkable story of Suharto's success as a, a leader of Indonesia from 66 to 96, and in which Indonesia set the curve for development in any dimension you want, for um, uh, on any dimension you want, for any large country. And second, Indonesia's transition to democracy from uh, Suharto to democracy was remarkably smooth and remarkably bloodless. Mm. Um, and it's, it took 10 years, but it happened, and now it's a pretty well-established system. So I, I was privileged to be a small part, a small cog in this machine, and it, was, it made me understand how addictive being part of history can be. Which leads us to that conversation that you had with Mary before you moved to Iraq. Uh, I had a similar conversation with my parents and, and my then-girlfriend, now-wife, about my own transition to Iraq in, in 2009, and I think it was, uh, it was a sense of history a little bit that, that I think led you and to a lesser extent me uh, to, to go and do the work that we did in Iraq. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, briefly what you did in Iraq and then I want to talk primarily about uh, your time in Afghanistan uh, after which we can draw some of the lessons from the book and then, and then open it up. Great. Um, I mean Iraq fundamentally was where my education, my counterinsurgency education started. Um, the uh, program that David Petraeus put together was organized by H.R. McMaster, um, whom I'm sure all you know. And who's We've not, heard the names. Yes, and who's now out at the Hoover Institute in, in, uh, at Stanford. And H.R. Um, is, like David Petraeus, just a brilliant soldier scholar. So I was privileged to work with two of the smartest people in the Army. And smart, Two of the smartest people I've worked with anywhere, and I've worked at the Rand Corporation and at the World Bank, and I still 
think that those people rank at the top of that list. So um, we spent only about a month in Iraq, but it was an extraordinary month. Because of the nature of, of what we were asked to do, we visited um, 13, I think, uh, PRTs, uh, provincial reconstruction teams, all over Iraq. So we got to see more of Iraq than virtually anybody else got to see in those days. Uh, people that went to the green zone got, occasionally went outside the green zone, but seldom even that. Uh, even army people who were on forward operating bases seldom left the base, or if they did, it was just to do uh, to, you know, peripheral stuff. So we got to see a lot of Iraq and a, a great many PRTs and, and uh, meet with a lot of Iraqis and a lot of coalition people. And it was just an extraordinary education and it began to solidify uh, my thinking on counterinsurgency. And the good thing about it was that, that there were uh, a number of senior military people and a number of, of uh, much more experienced civilians uh, who could sort of leaven my own thinking and help educate me in this process. But because I had spent so much time in international development, I brought a particular perspective to trying to understand what was going on. But it wasn't, the, the notion that, if you will, that the Iraqi government needed to be doing more and the coalition less was not my idea. It came out of other people in the uh, group that, that uh, was a part of this team. But it was fundamental to my, to shaping my own thinking on how, what was going wrong in Iraq and what needed to be done eventually in Afghanistan. Now in Iraq, the issue was more money than, than capacity. First Iraq, before the uh, uh, war started, had been a much more sophisticated country in terms of uh, governance and management than Afghanistan ever was. But it was also... I have Turkish family, Dennis, who used to vacation in Baghdad. Yeah, no, no. It was, well, as we'll get to, my family and I actually vacationed in Kabul when we lived in, a, in a Islamabad. And, and the point of that story is that that wasn't that long ago. These countries have changed in a remarkably short period of time. They were nice places and they became hellholes just almost overnight in a historic perspective. So um, we spent all this time touring uh, the, the provincial reconstruction teams in Iraq. And during those tours, I, the pressure was, look, Iraq was at that point generating increasing amounts of revenue from their oil uh, exports. And so why was the US pumping billions of dollars into Iraq when they had their own money? And the answer is that the coalition didn't want the government to do anything. They wanted, you know, whether it was the military or the civilian side, they wanted to do it because they felt that was their job. Uh, the reconstruction, uh, everything, the governance and so forth. So local Iraqis felt that they were being sidelined and they were being sidelined. And when you add to that the fact that on the soft side of counterinsurgency, the governance and development side, uh, the, the US government and other governments had a lot of trouble getting experienced people to go to these countries. They were, not, they were very isolated, they were dangerous, they were not particularly pleasant places to be. <clears throat> so many of the people that were in the PRTs, they were incredibly good people, they were brave, they were committed to the to country and to Iraq, but they were remarkably inexperienced. In the book, I tell of three people I spoke to at one PRT, uh, and I asked them, why were they there? The first one told me that his son was a Marine, and he hoped that if he came to Iraq, he would, his son would not have to come to Iraq. The second one was in the real estate business and saw that 
the writing on the wall and decided it was time to do something different. And the third one was planning something unemployed, was looking for a job. But the important thing about all of them is that none of them had been in a developing country before, and none of them had ever worked with a developing country government. I mean, to put people like this in an environment which is one of the most difficult development environments in the world strikes me as, as unfair and setting them up for failure. They did everything they could do, but they didn't even, in some sense, understand the problems that they were facing. So I think the staffing issues w was really important. Yeah, and I wasn't looking out at the crowd while you were saying that, but there's several folks, uh, Holly Barnes and others, that, that have uh, been in Iraq uh, that I'm sure what you just said resonates, my, myself included, and I think the PRTs did their best um, with with, uh, with not all the right um, tools. So I, I want to move on to, to Afghanistan because I think it was in Afghanistan where your lifetime development work and what started in Iraq uh, and, and you starting to think about counterinsurgency and how that development experience you had could play a part in the counterinsurgency. I think that really congealed when you were right. when you were in Afghanistan and you were embedded with the 173rd Airborne. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that time and really talk to us about something you call the People's Development Fund and why that was such a um, unique and, and sort of interesting uh, model of, of development. Well, let me start at the beginning of this because I think it's, it's an important message about the U.S. military. Um, after the Iraqi uh, month, Petraeus became uh, the head of CENTCOM, the Central Command for the U.S. Army. And as Petraeus likes to do, he put together a CENTCOM assessment team to advise him on his new command. And he put H.R. McMaster in charge of, of building that uh, team. Um, I learned several things from that. I was one of the people that was asked to join it. One is that the US military has a very different concept of a budget constraint than the rest of us do. That uh, CENTCOM assessment team started out probably with less than 30 people. But because of Petraeus's reputation and just the, the nature of, uh, of the CENTCOM uh, responsibilities, uh, it eventually grew to well over 100 people, probably closer to 200. And the budget went from less than a, a million dollars to $10 million, and nobody even blinked. It was like, hey, 10 million, 1 million, it's all the same. I mean, it's... To be was, fair, it was a little bit of a rounding error in how much we spent in Afghanistan. True, yeah. I mean, in the nature of military expenditures, these were round-off errors, both of them. So that was message number one. But during that time, I was associated with two regional teams, the Central Asia team, because I'd spent some time there, and what was called the AFPAC, the Afghan-Pakistan team. And the AFPAC team was interested, interesting to me in two regards. One is that the two countries were joined in a single country team, hmm. which suggested that Petraeus and others felt that they were importantly connected. But during the conversations in that team's uh, discussion, the vast majority of the time was spent on Pakistan, not Afghanistan, even though we were in a war in Afghanistan. So it brings home the, this incredibly complex relationship that the US has had with Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And having lived in Pakistan, for me, it, was, it sort of brought back old memories. And during the time uh, in the CENTCOM review, I met a young uh, soldier, soldier doctor, uh, Jay Baker. And Jay and I got along well, and he was very interested in policy stuff, even though he was a medical doctor. And um, over the course of the summer after that, we emailed several times, and he sort of said, would you be interested in advising us on our counterinsurgency work? In, and I said, sure, why not? And then they got, the one, he was with the 173rd Airborne, as Earl said. 
and they um, were then assigned to, to spend the uh, 2010 in Afghanistan. And uh, Jay asked if I would come and help them develop a program. And I said, sure, why not? Uh, so they were uh, in Hohenfels, Germany for a training session, which in and of itself was astonishing. I'll come to that in a minute. <laughs> but, um, and Jay called me up on Labor Day, as I recall, and said, could you join us in Hohenfels? And I said, I'd be delighted. And he said, can you be here tomorrow? And I said, I'm enthusiastic, but I can't be here tomorrow. I just can't, you know, that's, you're not exactly next door. But I was the day after. And uh, that was the start of my incredibly great relationship with 173rd Airborne. Here was a group of people that didn't know me from Adam. Um, and yet they were willing to take me on, listen to me, and trust me in ways that virtually nobody I've worked with has done before or since. And um, I, I live in awe that they were willing to trust me so much on something that, and, and to learn. They were very, very keen to learn and fortunately respected my background. And, but it, you know, the Afghan work led me to focus more on the crossover, as Errol has said, between my international development work and counterinsurgency. And I had begun to focus on the notion that we needed to go back to uh, David Galulas, the Frenchman who wrote the original text on uh, counterinsurgency, modern counterinsurgency, which Petraeus and, and Amos in their counterinsurgency manual uh, updated. And um, the notion that no counterinsurgency has been successfully uh, defeated on the basis of military might alone. It's almost definitional. But you need what they call a political solution. That is sort of indirect talk for a solution that recreates a bond between the people and their government. If you mm. think about it, insurgents fill a vacuum that's created when a government's, when governance breaks down. Yeah. When governments are no longer providing their people with what the people expect. Yeah. So that creates a space for insurgents and, and support for insurgents among the people. So the soft side of counterinsurgency policy needs to reestablish that link between people and their government. So I realized from my Iraq time and my, my sort of early lessons on Afghanistan that the coalitions in both military terms and development terms were completely overwhelming governments in these countries. And that in ways that meant that the coalition had to do everything. The coalition became the government. They became, they did all the defense, they did financial management, they did project management, project selection, everything. And the signals that the coalition were sending to the people of these countries was that their governments were so useless that they weren't worth the time of day. And that's exactly the opposite signal that we needed to be signaling. Mm. So my challenge was how do you come up with a way to rebuild this bond between people and their government? So I turned to some experience that I had in Afghanistan, in uh, Indonesia with one of my colleagues, Scott Guggenheim, who's a brilliant anthropologist, and to develop a program called the Ketchamatan Development Program, which was a decentralized program that gave small amounts of money to local communities and let them program it. But it was still a program in which the central government and donors constrained what, what uh, local governments could do. I decided in Afghanistan what we needed to do was to take that one step further to essentially test the proposition that even though local sub-governors were not politically appointed, that they, their relationship to their people were much, much closer than the relationship of anybody in Kabul to the people, 
People hated Kabul. Kabul was corrupt, it was distant, it was unattached, okay? Mm -hmm. But even though the local sub-governors might have been appointed by Kabul, they lived in the community and they were part of the community. So we needed to find a way to give them the instruments they needed to rebuild their uh, relationship with their people. The simple answer is give them a little money and a lot of space. And we did that. We simply gave them between 80 and $100,000 and we said, you may do anything you think is good with this money and I'll come to the, what good could mean for many of these people, but you need to ascribe to a certain level of transparency. Your people need to know how much money you got, the process you used to uh, assign the money. If you have contractors, how did you choose the contractors? Who did you choose? Who did you not choose? What the outcome was, etc. And not only did we want each sub-district people to know this, we wanted them to know what happened in all the sub-districts around them so that they had a, a yardstick to judge whether their sub-governor was doing well with the money relative to, not just in their, but relative to what other sub-governors are doing. I will tell you, in 50 years of doing international development, I was absolutely blown away by how good these sub-governors did. Now, mind you, I, there was no training, there was no guidelines. We didn't tell them what to do. We said, you do what you think is right. Every single sub-governor did something different. I mean, remarkably different. And yet, when we did the, the review of the first round of funding, and we drilled down on what they did, every one of them made sense in the context of their sub-districts in ways that no, uh, central government or no donor agency could ever have known. What are some examples of the types of things, just briefly, that, that they did? Well, for example, there was a, a province in uh, Logar, uh, I mean a district in Logar province, that had, um, that was quite kinetic and had a lot of fighting going on, and a lot of internal conflict within the district. So the uh, sub-governor decided that rather than sort of set a district priority, he would spread the money around uh, to signal to everybody that this was gonna be a fair process, that, that it wasn't gonna just, that one ethnic group wouldn't be uh, preferred, over, preferred over others. And so, and, and in another one, they had a very uh, progressive uh, sub-governor, and he'd already done a number of things, so he really, he maximized the um, uh, interaction with his constituency, and, and he optimized the use of these resources relative to the resources that he was getting from other sources, both the government and the donors. And they had, uh, a hospital that they had planned in the uh, district. And the hospital was supposed to be funded by one of the programs from the uh, central government. But the, the, they learned, the sub-governors, not to, not to believe in that, not to trust it because the money never came down. So he took the PDF money and assigned it to this hospital, but he was very careful to develop an agreement with the Ministry of Health and with donors to cover the recurrent costs. A very smart, nobody told him he had to worry about recurrent costs, he knew it. So he basically did the project that was better than we could ever have imagined. And there was another group that did something that I, I've often used as an example because no donor would ever have agreed to this. They bought a set of cutlery and dishes because they needed something to serve lunches on for the local Shura gatherings. That was such a fundamental part of their governance structure, and hospitality is a very important part of, the wor of, of, of that world. So it was just a total variety of things that went. A, a fourth one is they 
the government, the go governor had a pretty good uh, functioning uh, governance structure. So he sent his uh, council back to all of their localities and said, come back and tell me what your localities need. Each of them came back and they had, I think there were, as I recall, something like 17 of them. And he wrote down their priority project on pieces of paper and put them in a box, shuffled them up, and drew out the projects until he exhausted the money to demonstrate no favoritism. I mean, these people were really building for the future. They were trying to establish credible links with their people. Yeah. And they were doing it in different ways, in ways that no donor could ever have imagined. Now, Dennis, uh, I think those are really intriguing examples. Uh, I hadn't heard the cutlery story. That was really, that was really interesting. <clears throat> On page 133 of your book, you say, it's long past time to take off the blinders of conventional thinking and consider alternatives for dealing with counterinsurgencies or fragile states. I agree with that. But then I also noticed that your book is entitled Why Counterinsurgency Fails, not why my efforts to do counterinsurgency in Afghanistan changed the world. So talk to us a little bit about that failure um, and what you learned uh, from, from that experience. I mean, it sounds like an intriguing example. I'm sure there's a lot of head nodding by especially the development folks here about locally driven, locally uh, oh, sure. owned uh, development. So talk to us a little bit about that failure. I mean, I think the reason that it was so hard to expand the program that we developed with the 173rd throughout Afghanistan was that it was a hands-off program. It was a program that said, we're going to give responsibility back to the Afghan government governance structure. And nobody in Washington or in the military or anywhere else really wanted to do that because there were hundreds of thousands of people out there running programs. I mean, the, the incentives were, we'll do more. What we're doing is right. We just need more money to do more of it. Yeah. More of it this time we're serious. It's not going to change life. So we really, and I, you know, the subtext of this talk was, um, what was the subtitle? Um, <laughs> US. No, 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 of this talk. It was, oh, can the, can the U.S. win the next counterinsurgency war? Right. Okay. Let's parse that a bit. Is the U.S. able to win the next counterinsurgency war? The answer is yes. Will the U.S. win the next counterinsurgency war? My answer is I doubt it. Because the incentive structures within the government and in the international community, for the same reason, by the way, that the international community is unlikely to reform the way they operate in fragile states. That it's just, everything works against doing it right. And my, the, the uh, quote that Eric gave is that we need to step back from this and say, we have 50 years of failure in counterinsurgency and fragile states it's time to step back and, and think of something outside the box, way outside the box. And my only claim to fame is that we tried something very different in, in these two provinces in Afghanistan, and it worked. It worked in ways that even as an experienced development person, I could never have imagined. So it seems to me worth, the book is about starting a conversation. I think, I hope we all agree that the starting point that the U.S. doesn't have a right when it comes to counterinsurgency is not an arguable point given Vietnam, Iraq, and, and Afghanistan. But whether my solution, something like local government uh, funding, is the right solution is certainly a debatable issue. I think it is based on my experience, but I'm happy to have that conversation, and I hope we can pursue that during the question and answer. Um, which I want to get to, and, and I'm going to ask Carmen and others to, to get some microphones. I, while we're, people are thinking about questions, which we're going to turn to right, right in a second, on page 126, you say, with hindsight, I would draw six lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan and my work in fragile states. And so in an effort to, to throw some grenades into the conversation and, and uh, provide some fodder for feedback from you all, um, tell us what those six lessons were uh, and then we'll turn to some audience questions. Okay, I'm not sure I, I 
have exactly six here, but let me give you the lessons. Um, I think a fundamental lesson is for counterinsurgency is that the international community needs to be clear on its mission. And it never was in either Iraq or Afghanistan. Is it capacity building or is it state building and international welfare? Now, by international welfare, I mean, is it the international community improving the lives of people or is it helping local governments or governments generally to improve the lives of their people? The second is a much slower process than the first, but the second is what builds capacity. The first does not. Their 50 years of international development experience has underscored that point clearly. Um, second point, more money is not always the answer. In fact, it may be the problem. And I think it was true, particularly in Afghanistan. We simply overwhelmed the system with projects and money that was totally unabsorbable and unmanageable by the, by, the local, by the government. Third, the key to enhancing stability is working with local governments because they are the face of governments for most citizens, whereas national government tends to be too remote. Um, donors must be willing to take risk and accept failure. This is probably the hardest lesson because it's one that people aren't going to But also, do. I think one of the most fundamental, yes. and maybe during the Q&A we can get to this, but this idea of tolerance of failure, which we're not good at. I uh, mean, if you think about it, you cannot build capacity by giving people incentives and responsibility unless you're prepared to accept failure. Because yeah. the minute you signal you're not, it's your problem, not theirs. Right. Um, continuity is the key to the soft side of counterinsurgency. Uh, Afghanistan had a reputation of being 10 one-year wars, or now probably 17 one-year wars, but in, when I was there, 10 one-year wars. Every year, brigades changed and leadership changed and the programs changed. That's, in a, a conventional war, you can get away with that because there are clear battle plans, but not in the counterinsurgency. You need much more continuity, both on the military side, but most especially on the governance and development side. And that was never clear, never there in Afghanistan. And since the civilians turned over more frequently than the military, it was even worse on the civilian side. Um, okay. Fighting most critically, the kinetic side of counterinsurgency is important, but it's not the key. Most military leaders I worked with understood this, but few civilians did. And I, this is, a, for me, one of the fascinating things about our, the U.S. effort in, in, uh, in all counterinsurgency things. We've known, as I said, since at least 1964, Petraeus wrote the so-called coin manual, counterinsurgency manual, along with General Amos. And those documents all stress the need for a political, non-kinetic solution. They all recognize that counterinsurgencies are not one on the battlefield. They're one on the governance side of things. And yet, we didn't emphasize that. We just emphasized the military side. The best solutions to counterinsurgencies is to nip them in the bud. The, the, if, you, if we could become more effective at working in the fragile states that are the breeding grounds for insurgencies, we would not have to fight counterinsurgency wars. So that strikes me as a very important lesson to this. And I think we can be much more effective in fragile states, and I think the program we developed with the 173rd carries some important lessons for that, but that's the topic for... Perhaps another day. Right. Um, I want to turn it over to the audience who's been waiting uh, patiently. I think there's a lot of fodder there. I think there was uh, more than a little provocative. For those of us that do this day in and day out, I think there's especially that last point about the kinetic versus the, the civilian. So we had a question back here. If you could identify who you are in your organization, that'd be great. Uh, hello, my name is Jason, um, paramilitary guy, and now work in government, I'll simply say. Um, I'm curious because of after all of the best practices you mentioned, sir, um, are basically what I saw when I got to work in Columbia and everything I've studied about 
the U.S. role in Colombia writ large, uh, at least when you're talking about the FARC, not the uh, counter-drug mission per se. Um, do you consider that a successful counterinsurgency? Mm. Uh, I'm just curious since you didn't uh, bring it up and that's been something we've been at about the last 50 years. Yeah, playing Colombia. I want to, um, Dennis, if you're all right with it, I want to bundle if there are a couple others. If not, we'll go, yes, this uh, gentleman right here, and then we'll get to this gentleman in the front. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you very much for, for uh, this candid and very informative presentation. Uh, having served in Afghanistan between 2009 and 2011 as a junior diplomat as acting uh, and as acting PRT leader in Maidan Vardak, I have had the uh, chance to observe uh, myself uh, what you have done uh, as the U.S. in Vardak, in Logar, also what we have done. Uh, two questions I have. Uh, the first one is about the collaboration and cooperation of the PRTs in Afghanistan during your tenure, uh, because uh, PRTs were led by several members of the coalition. Uh, what do you think about the, the level of cooperation and collaboration between PRTs in Afghanistan? And the second one, as the thinking uh, is initiated for the reconstruction of uh, Syria, uh, you think that uh, PRT uh, is, would be a uh, model that would be replicated in, in Syria as well, uh, taking into account different uh, players and different uh, structures of the local community? Thank you very much. Excellent. I appreciate it. Excellent questions. Uh, this gentleman in the front, and then we'll go to Dennis. Oh, yes. yes, my name is Eric Lachica. I'm with the U.S. Uh, Filipinos for Good Governance. Uh, my question is that uh, I'm a fan of, of Max Boots' uh, books, Invisible Armies, and uh, The Road Not Taken, especially the work of uh, Colonel Lansdale. And I, I was informed that uh, you didn't use the words uh, during your presentation of winning hearts and minds. Isn't that the bottom line if uh, American military leaders don't develop that relationships on the ground with the different leaders in Afghanistan and Iraq? That seems to be the bottom line, and there's no long-term one-on-one relationships. That's why it leads to failure. Excellent. Yes. Excellent questions. Thank you. Dennis? Yeah, they are excellent questions. They're also very hard questions. But let, me, let me start with the that's last what one. what we expect from our CSIS right. audience. No, that's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> let me start with the last one because I think it raises, a, a, first, I can answer it, and second, it raises a very important issue. Uh, the phrase winning hearts and minds has been, in my judgment, misinterpreted. The U.S. has treated it as, we want the Afghan people to think we're good people. We, the U.S., are. So they do good things for, you know, they build hospitals and schools and so forth. But in a counterinsurgency context, the term winning hearts and minds means the national government winning the hearts and minds of its people. And that's where, that's, that, break in, the, in that was what I think caused the counterinsurgency strategy to go astray in both countries, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes, I mean, winning hearts and minds is another uh, way of putting the, the political solution for uh, side of, the, of counterinsurgencies. But it's all about building a relationship between people and their, their governments, not our governments. We want to help that. But we can't get in the way of it, and we did. And that, I think, is, was one of the fundamental problems. Okay. Uh, and sorry, Dennis, while you're thinking about that, I think one of the things you talk about in the book, the way that we did that was overwhelming local governments, especially with our assistance. And so I think one of the lessons that I took from Dennis's book was being a little bit more thoughtful and deliberate about, um, you know, staged more uh, soft touch support at first and sort of building and not expecting that like in Iraq we can go in and just sort of overwhelm and, and rebuild through essentially infinite amounts of money and, and resources. So. I mean, I, as I say somewhere in the book, the if Iraqis and the Afghans are not stupid people. If they give you, if the world gives them a billion dollars this year, and they steal 200 million of it, and then say, don't do that again, but here's $2 billion next year. I'm sorry, folks, what's the message? And that's what central governments were about. They were about rent-seeking and managing donors, not about developing their country. That was one of the distorting aspects 
of the overwhelming amount of money that was going into both these countries, but particularly Afghanistan. Um, okay, let me come to the PRT coordination question. Uh, I, it, although the question was asked in the context of Afghanistan, let me use Iraq to answer it because I thought more about it in that context. Um, but in both countries, I think the same thing was true. But in the nearly two dozen PRTs that we visited in Iraq, I think way less than 10% of them had a USAID representative in them. Mm. 10%. Less way than 10%. Less than I mean, they were, there was a rarity. And yet USAID was the development agency for the United States government. And these were the the instruments that the coalition was using to bring development to Iraq. Yeah. It made, and so there was no coordination among the huge amounts of money that USA was pumping into these countries and what the PRTs were doing. So that makes very little sense. So, um, and then they, in both countries, the PRTs were not always led, they were led by coalition members as well as um, the US government. So for example, um, in Afghanistan, the, the PRT that was most associated with uh, the 173rd was, was actually run, was Turkish. Uh, and so it was even more difficult to coordinate because uh, you had both the cultural differences that are, that are associated between Turkey and the rest of the coalition but also just the split, uh, the massive amounts of money through the SERP, et cetera, that the military was putting into development. Uh, and you just had all these stovepipes of development assistance that made coordination virtually impossible. Okay, Columbia question. I mean, I think it's, I, it's a great question to, to which I would like to eventually spend some more time looking at. I think, when it came to FARC, yes. Because Colombia was more advanced and, and more able to stand up against the donor community and the US, they were able to manage FARC themselves, which was a much better way to do it than have outside influences doing it. The problem, the reason that I didn't think about this, it's a bad excuse, is that the anti-drug program that the US has used in countries like Colombia I think is a total disaster. And so I tend to think of that as a failure, whereas the efforts that Colombia has spent, I actually used to work in Colombia when I was with, uh, with the World Bank, and it was, a, even years ago, it was an impressive country in terms of the quality of the people that led it. And they were some of the best people I've ever worked with. So. It's not surprising to me that they've worked out a way to deal with their own insurgencies. So I think it is a, a success. And because the solutions were local. Just a quick on the Columbia thing, and then I want to get to Tom and, and some others. <clears throat> the other thing I would add is that we, not only the US, but with our coalition partners in Colombia made a multi-decade commitment in the form of Plan Colombia that included different parts of our government. Um, and I think when we're thinking about future counterinsurgency work, I think we need to think about this whole of government. And I think the Trump administration, through the Stabilization Assistance Review, for example, uh, is, is moving, at least on this uh, instance, in the, in the right direction. They're thinking about all the tools that we have in the toolbox to deal with stabilization. And I think that's uh, a model or, or a, a way of thinking about this that I, that I think we should, uh, that we should explore further in future counterinsurgency. So I, taught, I saw Tom had his hand up, and then I was hoping to get one of our uh, yes uh, up here. So we'll do two questions. Tom in the middle row here. We'll come to you afterwards. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm Caroline, I'm an uh, international development intern at Touch Tech. And um, I was wondering, it sounds like in Afghanistan you kind of had a uh, situation with the local leaders that was very conducive to doing that kind of development. But what if you were in an area that didn't have like an established um, 
framework to work within like that? It's a really excellent question. And then in the center row, the gentleman with the tie, yeah, with the hand up there. Thank you. Hi, uh, Tom Stahl with USAID. Uh, spent a number of years working on Iraq. Um, lots of good stuff there, and, and most of it I agree with. Uh, certainly the, the resources at the PRTs that you mentioned in your experience in Iraq, and only 10% uh, of USAID people there. And it brought up uh, a number of questions. One was, you know, is what, what is the role of the actual development organizations in counterinsurgencies, and how do you coordinate that with the military? That's been one thing that's a big issue for a lot of development agencies as well. We shouldn't be talking to the military. And how do we uh, work that? The other issue I wanted to explore a little bit is I totally agree that you need to focus at local government. But on the other hand, the national government has a huge influence too in what's going on in the country and a lot of the grievances that the insurgents are taking advantage of and, and uh, complaining about are at the national level. So you have to also deal with sort of governance at the national level. So your experience, especially in the PRTs in Iraq, uh, and, and what sort of govern, how a government governance was working and what was and what was, uh, I'd be very interested to hear more about. Thank yeah. you. Excellent. And then we had a question in the back, uh, Carmen. Yeah. <coughs> Uh, Alex Shakow, thank you, Dennis, for a terrific presentation. Look forward to reading the book. Uh, 50 Years does incorporate chords in Vietnam, just barely. Uh, could you comment on what you think the lessons are that chords in Vietnam provides you as you link this to Afghanistan and Iraq? Which, <clears throat> quite frankly, is the best teaser for why you should read this book. Uh, because uh, he does talk about chords in the book at, at, um, quite, I think, eloquently. So we had three really good questions. Absolutely. And then unfortunately, I think we're going to have to end it after those. But um, we had, uh, I'll just turn it over to you, Dennis. Okay, let me start again at the end with Alex's question. Um, I can think I can best answer that question by telling, telling you what the working title of my book was originally before it got into Palgrave and McMillan, it changed it. It was. <laughs> Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, three strikes and you're out. So it all started in Vietnam, okay? I'm really sad that that's not the title of your book. So am I. It's <laughs> really excellent. But I think it doesn't uh, Google search well or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Anyways, the answer is we, we made identically the same mistakes in Vietnam. I mean, chords and... <clears throat> There, there are some, if you look at H.R. Uh, McMaster's brilliant book, uh, Dereliction of Duty, you, you'll see many of the same themes running through that that run, come up in Iraq. And, and so, and that is one of the great puzzles. It's not like we haven't had this experience and it, wasn't, it was an incredibly costly experience. Why didn't we learn more from it? So that makes me pessimistic about how, the, the, the sort of the larger incentive structure that all of these decisions are being made in is such that changes are very hard to bring about. But so I, you know, uh, I didn't study, because I didn't actually work directly in Vietnam during the uh, war for reasons that I've already told you, um, I didn't include it, but I think it's, it's definitely very much part of the story. Well, but you talk about how chords was, the PRT model was built was out Was built on chords, yeah. On chords. And, yeah, I mean, and I, I, for try for to, I try to draw the link yeah. to, so that historically people can see that, you know, it's not that we didn't try these things before and we didn't get, the, get them right in any of the three places that we tried them. Um, okay. Um, Okay, the, the question on, Tom's question on USAID and sort of working with the military. Um, for, uh, the, the, the absolutely right. I, I don't want to ever leave anybody with the impression that a local government uh, program is all you need to do in a country. 
It is one of a host of instruments. If I were advising Ashraf Ghani today in Afghanistan, I wouldn't tell him stop doing large development projects. I would tell him <clears throat> for a very, very small fraction of the assistance that's coming in, you could do a, PR, a, a PDF type program for every district in Afghanistan, for less than $50 million a year, for every district. And that would signal to those districts that they're on their own, that they, you know, and it would, I am totally convinced that it would help pull Afghanistan together, not force it apart. But every instinct in a central government is take control and, and hold control and tighten control. And that makes things worse, not better. So I would, as I said, I would say that, uh, yes, we have to continue to improve governance in capitals, in, in uh, national governments. But in the end, the track record on outsiders doing that is very poor. This is something that a country must commit to as a country. People must demand and make it happen. And my sort of long-term vision is that if you start improving governance at the local level, it will rapidly work its way up through the system. It will go from districts to provinces, from provinces to the central government. So rather than start at the top and try to influence the bottom, you start at the bottom and try to influence the top. Because I know you can influence the bottom. I'm not sure you can influence the top. Mm. Um, I mean, we've tried everything when it comes to making national governments govern better. We've withheld money, we've given them more money, we've trained them, we've taken them out and whatever. And in my judgment, none of it's worked. So we need to think outside the box a bit on that. Um, and then the role, you know, how do you, how did aid agencies coordinate with um, the military? Uh, now, and I come to the first question, which was, is, was there something special about Logar and Wardak provinces that made this work there? But I will tell you that yes, there was something special about my experience. But it wasn't the provinces I was working in. It was 173rd Airborne. As my experience with its subs the subsequent brigade, the 410th, indicated, not every brigade in the US Army is as open as 173rd were to ideas and to outsiders like me helping advise them. But th I think there was a genuine effort on the part of the 173rd to engage all of the actors on the development and governance front, so all the PRTs in, in their area, uh, USAID and the civilians and so forth. Uh, but it, 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 there was, since the other side of the table, the non-military side of the table, comprised so many different actors, none of whom were terribly well coordinated among themselves, it was very hard to know what it meant to be associated with that side because each one of them had a different program that they would like to pursue. So and also the 10 one year. Yeah, yeah, that was that was strategies really. was yeah. So I mean I think uh, coordinating with development and agencies with the military is in a technical sense not difficult. It's a sort of philosophical moralistic problem that you know we can't we can't be a part of that. And it's wrong, I'm sorry, uh, especially in a counterinsurgency context. It, we were accused in Iraq when we gave our recommendations on uh, how to improve counterinsurgency there of being a Trojan horse that was actually trying to rebuild, uh, to strengthen the military role in Iraq when, it, when the recommendations were precisely the opposite. It was trying to strengthen the Iraq role and the civilian side role. But I mean, I don't know how you organize the civilian side of a counterinsurgency in a way that, that isn't stovepiped and doesn't have competition among different actors on the civilian side, which I saw all the time uh, in many parts of uh, both these countries. Well, and I think that's the conversation that needs to come out of this book. There was one last question here about, you know, what do you, what do, you do when you don't have, you know, it sounds like you had willing and present 
counterparts in Logar and, and other places you worked in Afghanistan, but what happens when that's not the case? Okay, but I want to divide that last, that first question into two parts. Was there something special about Word Logar and Wordak? And the answer is no. They had the full range yep. of, of, of instability, insurgents, Taliban, the whole bit. Uh, and they were strategically important to the effort because they were supply routes through to Kabul because they were just to the uh, south of Kabul. Um, but as I've already said, the 173rd was clearly special. But I think I, you know, the military is the military, and if the, the top says do it, people at least think hard about how to do it. So if if I had been more aggressive in convincing General Petraeus that this should have happened, it, we might have been able to spread it more widely. That was my mistake. Um, I mean, I'm not sure it would have worked, but I certainly should have tried harder than I did. Well, listen, Dennis, <clears throat> I think I speak on behalf of everybody here that we're um, very fortunate to have you share your experiences and share your knowledge with us. I encourage everyone to read it. We are going to, if you signed up here, if you signed in with your email address, we will send a PDF copy of Dennis's book to you. If you want a physical hard copy, if you're a little bit old school like me and you actually like to feel the pages in your, in your hands, um, Dennis have a, has a few copies here for sale that, that you can get from him. Um, but I just want to thank Dennis for, you know, this is a, I don't know if it's a magnum opus, but it's, it's really a culmination of your decades long experience doing really important development work and, and now uh, counterinsurgency work. And, and I think for those of us that are currently doing development work or thinking about development and, and thinking about the world that we, we are sort of passing on to our children that's, you know, on one sense better off and, and, um, and in another sense more fragile, I, I think we're going to need more provocative, productively provocative stories like this to help us and push us and challenge us. And so, Dennis, thank you for, for taking the time to put this. I, I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, and share it uh, widely. And please join me in, in thanking Dennis Detray for. Thank you.